We have been studying the book of the Twelve, which is the least familiar portion of the Bible, usually called the Minor Prophets. These twelve books are minor only in size. It was suggested to me last week that maybe a better name for the Minor Prophets would be the Mini Prophets. I like that. That's good. They're minor only in their length. They're not minor in their message. No, they're major. They wonderfully reveal God to us. They reveal his justice, his massive, trustworthy justice, and his massive, unspeakable love. We're going to see that today, especially as we study Micah. I've explained each week that one of the best ways to make sense of these minor prophets, these very difficult and unfamiliar books, is to understand where they fit into history. And so I have walked through a really brief summary of Israel's history, and I've just stated it usually in three parts. And the first is you just need to know around 1000 BC, 1000 years before Christ, David and Solomon reigned in Jerusalem, and this was the pinnacle, the peak of Israel's strength as a nation. Not quite a hundred years later, then, is the second facet, and that is the kingdom split under Solomon's sons. The kingdom split into ten tribes going into the north and two tribes going into the southern kingdom. The southern kingdom had its capital in Jerusalem. So you have the united kingdom under David and Solomon around a thousand. Then the kingdom divides just a little before 900 with Solomon's sons in north and south. And then the last facet you really need to know in order to have a framework for understanding the minor prophets is that both northern and southern kingdoms were decimated. The northern kingdom was decimated in 722 by Assyria, capital Nineveh. The southern kingdom was conquered about a hundred years later in 586 when Nebuchadnezzar's armies, his Babylonian armies, torched and conquered Jerusalem. They sieged it, they torched it, they took away all of the temple treasures, and they left the city in shambles. Both northern Israel and southern Israel were decimated. It's in that context, then, that you can understand how these prophets fit. Today we're studying Micah, who was like a political commentator. He was in the south during the days that the northern kingdom was being decimated. He's in the south, and he's saying, essentially, God has long prophesied what's taking place up north, and we are going to be no different if we don't turn from our sins, if we don't turn from our rebellion and our idolatry and submit ourselves to the Lord. These prophets are like political commentators. They're commenting on the eventual collapse of the, the culture because of the culture's corruption. Now, I'm going to take some time to read through Micah. I'm not going to read through all seven chapters, but we're going to pick out bits and pieces from each chapter, and I'm going to encourage you to track with me. Reading God's Word is the most important thing we do. I'll make a few explanatory comments throughout, and then I'm going to give a few minutes to teaching, 
I think it's here in Micah that we need to stop and, and do some teaching on how significant these prophecies are and we need to understand how they're fulfilled. And then I'm going to wrap up with a couple encouragements, some pastoral counsel for how we need to apply this to our lives. So if you look at Micah 1.1, Micah says, The word of the Lord that came to him, he identifies himself as Micah of Moresheth, in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, the kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria, that's the capital of the northern kingdom, and Jerusalem, that's the capital of the southern nation in which he lives. Now, if you put together these kings, he says, basically, this is the time period in which I spoke my messages. It's about 30 years from King Jotham through Ahaz and then Hezekiah. And it wraps up about 15 years or so after the northern kingdom falls. So he is ministering probably, most people suggest, for almost 40 years. And he was contemporary with Isaiah. In fact, it seems that Isaiah quotes from Micah. And I'm going to zero in on that portion in just a little bit. Now, most writers agree that Micah actually has three sections. Chapters 1 and 2 is the first section. Chapters 3, 4, and 5, the second section. And chapters 6 and 7, the third section. Each of the sections opens with Micah saying, hear or listen, your translation may have. Starts with the same word. And each ends with a shocking message of hope. Each begins with hear and each ends with hope. The first message is chapters 1 and 2. Micah proclaims chapter 1 verse 2, Hear, you peoples, all of you, pay attention, O earth, and all that's in it. And let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. So Micah announced that the Lord is coming to judge Israel. He responds, look at verse 8, with lamenting and wailing over the impending judgment that will fall. And he lists then in verses 8 to 16 every little town that will be conquered as the armies invade. In chapter 1, he identifies the sins of Israel really as idolatry and unfaithfulness. But look at chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. It's there that he addresses Israel's social sins, not just unfaithfulness to the Lord, but cruelty to others. For example, verse 2 of chapter 2, he confronts the rich who covet other people's properties and seize them. Look down at verse 6. He confronts false prophets who are preaching false messages. Do not preach. That's what they preach. <laughs> it's ironic, right? Do not preach, say those who are preaching. One should not preach of such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. In other words, Micah is exposing the fact that he lived in a culture that couldn't tolerate messages of judgment. Our culture is similarly intolerant of messages of judgment, including within our churches. Many so-called churches today will not preach that God's judgment or discipline will come. They'll only preach messages of positivity. Micah lived in the exact same kind of culture. He confronts that culture in verse 11. If a man should go about and utter wind and lies, 
saying, I'll preach to you about the joys of wine and strong drink. He'd be the perfect preacher for this people. That's what people want to hear about. Ouch. So Israel is rejecting the truth that Micah's preaching, and they're just wanting prophets who are, who are going to encourage them to just keep on living how they're living, keep pursuing your empty pleasures. And then look at how Micah ends this first section, verse 12 of chapter 2. The Lord says, I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I'll gather the remnant of Israel. I'll set them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. He who opens the breach goes up before them. They break through and pass the gate going out by it. The king passes on before them. The Lord is at their head. Where did this come from? The Lord tells these people that he's just said, I'm going to judge for all of your waywardness. He says, I'm going to personally regather you, shepherd you, lead you. You, you, you people who are dirty with corruption, I'm going to lead you. Wow. Shocking. And it's going to happen two more times. Chapters 1 to 2, I would just summarize saying, after God judges the nation for disobedience, he'll personally save a remnant. There'll be a small portion that he personally leads rescues. He then begins chapters 3 to 5, the second section, with the very same word, hear. Hear, you rulers of Israel. And throughout chapter 3, he denounces Israel's leaders, her kings, You'll see him talk to the prophets and to the legal justices and to the priests, the spiritual leaders, for their cruel selfishness. He figuratively describes it as cannibalistic. It's like they're devouring people in their cruelty. And then beginning in chapter 4 again, seemingly out of the blue, God promises a glorious future for Israel. He says Jerusalem is going to be the center of the world government. And this is where it seems that Isaiah in chapter 2 is quoting Micah here in chapter 4. I just want to read the first few verses of Micah 4. It shall come to pass in the latter days, or you might say the last days, that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. It shall be lifted up above all the hills and the peoples shall flow to it. Many nations shall come and say, Come, let's go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, and he will judge between many peoples and shall decide disputes for strong nations far away. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore, but they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one will ever make them afraid again, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. What a promise. A world without war. Incredible. A world of peace. A world without fear. A world in which everyone worships the one true God who made them. And yet, Micah says, this perfect world will only come about, if you look down at Micah 4.10, it will only come about after massive national collapse, after deportation to Babylon. 
If chapter 4 is Micah's hopeful announcement about what will happen, chapter 5, I think, is Micah's identification of who's going to bring it about. Chapter 5, verse 1. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the leader of Israel on the cheek. In other words, Israel immediately is going to go down. They're going to be sieged. They're going to be ready for war. And they're going to get hit hard. But, verse 2, you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who's to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Therefore he, God, will give them up until the time when she who's in labor will give birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will dwell secure. For now, this Bethlehem-born king will be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Whoa. There it is. Written by God 700 years before Jesus comes. So after national collapse, a king from David's line is going to be born in David's own small hometown of Bethlehem. And that king is going to gather God's scattered sheep. As one translation puts it, he'll be highly honored around the world and he'll be the source of peace for the whole world. The end of the chapter, chapter 5, goes on to say that Israel is then going to bless the nations. They're going to be idol-free and enemy-free. So the first section ended just like the second section now ends. Micah 3, 4, and 5, I would summarize like this. After God judges the leaders for their disobedience, he will raise up a shepherd king from Bethlehem who will bless the whole world with peace. After judgment, there will be remarkable blessing. Incredible. Micah's third and final section is chapters 6 and 7. He begins again, chapter 6, verse 1. Hear what the Lord says. And Micah describes a court case that the Lord brings against Israel. If you look at verse 2, he brings an indictment against Israel and he says, plead your case. I want to hear what your response is. In verse 3, he basically says, is the problem with me? Am I the problem? Haven't I been so gracious with you through the years? And Israel considers her options in verse 6. Does God want my animal sacrifices? Does God want me to bring extravagant offerings? And God responds in verse 8, probably the most famous verse in the prophecy of Micah. No, God says, I require humans to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Jesus quoted this verse in Matthew 23, 23. He was talking to the religious hypocrites of his day, and he basically says, you guys pay attention to the nitpickiest little things in your law, and you miss the massive call of God on your life. That is, the weightier matters, 
of justice, mercy, and faithfulness to God. Of course, Israel's problem is all of humanity's problem, and that is we have failed to live up to God's requirement of humanity. We do not love God and walk with him humbly. We often don't want his authority over our lives. And we as humans often think of ourselves first rather than our obligations to others to love them and to be faithful to our word to them. We don't live up to our expectations. Hmm. So we can identify with Israel. Micah says in chapter 6, verse 11, the whole nation is filled with business people who cheat each other for their own gain, with rich people being selfish and cruel. Everyone lies. They're in it for themselves. Micah 7.1, Micah laments the nation's corruption. I think this is critical. This is deeply convicting for me as I've read through Micah. I don't cry enough over our culture. My reaction to our culture is often arrogance, looking down on our culture. And Micah models a wailing, a lamenting, a crying over his culture's sins. In verse 5, he urges Israelites, don't trust your friends. Verse 6, don't even trust your spouse. Don't trust the people who are closest to you for security. But instead, he says, verse 7, Micah 7, 7, look to the Lord, wait on him for security. It's interesting. He says, don't trust your friends, don't trust your spouse, don't trust your relatives. Jesus quotes this passage again in Matthew 10 when he tells his disciples that a person's enemies will be those of his own household. He's quoting Micah 7. Micah and Jesus are both, of course, warning that in following the Lord, there is no escape from hardship. Those who heard Micah preach would face Babylon, and they better not think that their family could do anything about it. Those who follow Jesus will face persecution. And Jesus said many times that persecution will come from your own household when people get bothered that you are following Jesus rather than your family traditions. So Micah cries out again in chapter 7, verse 8. Look at his exact words. Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. And when I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. And it's here that this third section, just like the first two, returns to hope. Hope in the darkness. The Lord is going to lead his people in a powerful new exodus. He's going to trample his enemies like snakes in the dust. Look at verses 15 and 16. And that's going to fulfill the long ago made covenant to Adam and Eve in Eden. This hope seems to come out of nowhere again. And this is why Micah ends like he does. God's speaking through Micah to a rebellious people. And out of nowhere comes this hope. It's why Micah writes verse 18. Look at Micah 7, 18. Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgression for the remnant of your inheritance. You don't retain your anger forever. You delight in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You'll cast all of our sins into the depth of the sea. And he basically says, you'll fulfill every covenant promise you've ever made. 
So history will not end in utter judgment of sinners, but in glorious salvation for some. For, as they're put here at the end of Micah, the remnant of God's inheritance. So I think this third section ends the exact same way. God is going to judge his people, and after that judgment, he is going to lead his people in a monumental comeback. There will be a remnant he forgives. So I would summarize the message of Micah like this. God's just judgment will fall on the rebel world, but he will save a remnant and bless people from every nation through his Bethlehem-born king, all because he delights in covenant-keeping love. It's the kind of God he is. He is going to save a small portion of people out of this world after his judgment. And the most vivid quality we see about God here in Micah is his, what I've called, out-of-nowhere love. We exist to show God's justice and mercy and faithfulness to God and to others, to love God and others. That's our whole responsibility as people. And yet none of us has ever lived up to that perfect standard. Not one of us. Justice, that's to be expected. Justice is normal. It's not shocking that God judges rebellion. What's shocking is that he makes a way for us to be forgiven. It's shocking that he wants to bless us who are rebels. It's shocking. Why would God do that? Micah's answer, Micah's speaking, he's revealing our God to us. Micah says it's because of who God is. This is what God is like. He's a God of covenant-keeping love. And he's incomparable in this way. I'm going to quote from one portion of the book we're giving out today, Gentle and Lowly. It's an excellent book that will encourage you here at the year end, or maybe as you read it starting the new year. Pastor Dane Ortland, who wrote it, says, Nowhere else in the Bible is God described as rich in anything. The only thing he's called rich in is this, mercy. What does that mean? It means that God is something other than we naturally believe him to be. It means, get this, that the Christian life is a lifelong shedding of tepid thoughts of the goodness of God. In his justice, God is exacting. In his mercy, he's overflowing. He's rich. Don't think about God's love and mercy as tepid, lukewarm. It's white hot. The heart of God is hot with love for people. It's who he is. In our Christian lives, we've got to keep growing and growing and growing to realize how good God is. In his justice, he's exacting. In his mercy, he's overflowing. That's our God. I want to take just a few minutes and teach. And then I'm going to wrap up with applying these words of Micah. I need to briefly teach 
how all these prophets, all the Old Testament prophets, viewed the future. Micah refers there in chapter 4, verse 1, to the latter days or the last days. And he does so at least a half dozen times in this book. Most notably there is in the first couple verses of chapter 4, which again, I think Isaiah quotes Micah in Isaiah chapter 2, almost identical portions in Isaiah and Micah. If you look at Micah 4 verse 1, those following verses, you'll see that in the last days, verse 1 says, people from many nations will come to Jerusalem. Verse 2 says, they'll submit themselves to the Lord, to his word. Verses 3 and 4 describe the world will be at peace. And then verses 6 and 7 say that the remnant will be regathered and the lame will be completely healed. What day is he describing? When does this take place? This is what I want to work through. And I hope this is really helpful in numerous ways. I I have wrestled with whether I go into this much detail, and I think no one's going to get ticked at me for going into this much detail. And I guarantee you when I'm done with it, your faith is going to be strengthened. Or if you're not a follower of Jesus, you're going to be challenged because of what God's word reveals. It's beautiful. It's been said that the prophets saw the future a bit like we stand at a distance and see a mountain range. Take, for example, the Grand Tetons in Wyoming. They're one of the most breathtaking sites in the United States. At first glance, the Grand Tetons are simple. They look like one mountain with a couple remarkable peaks. But if you go into closer examination, like some hikers do, the Grand Tetons are not one mountain, but they are a mountain range. They're a mountain range with four central peaks. First is the South Teton, then the Middle Teton, then Grand Teton, the tallest of them, and then Mount Owen. There are more, but those are referred to, those four are referred to as the cathedral group of the Grand Tetons. And each of those peaks ascends over 12,000 feet in elevation. They're massive. And although they look pretty tight from, from this vantage point, those four peaks are actually spread over a space that is two and a half miles. That is the same distance from where we're sitting today to I-90. They don't look like they're that far apart, but looks can be deceptive. And hikers... I've only read their journals. Hikers say they can't get to even three of the four peaks in one day because of the space that's between them. Two and a half miles, and between them are massive drops that descend more than a thousand feet. In actuality, these are four distinct mountains with quite a bit of space and massive drops between each of them, and this illustrates perfectly what Micah saw in chapter 4, when he saw the last days. From his vantage point, around 700 BC, he saw the last days in one glance. And he didn't necessarily understand how the various peaks were spread out. I might put it like this. You have first 
this, this peak of regathering in verse 6. Well, this is going to happen around 500 B.C. After the exile, Israel is going to be sent back with Persian support to rebuild the temple, to rebuild the city, to rebuild the people, which is what Ezra and Nehemiah engage in. And that was like the first peak. But it's nothing compared to what happens 400, 500 years later when all of a sudden someone starts healing the lame. Under Roman domination, the shepherd king was born in Bethlehem and he healed the lame. He preached repentance and many Israelites, along with many non-Israelites, Samaritans, Greeks, Romans, a Syrophoenician, they turn from their idolatry and they experience peace with God through committing their lives to Jesus. That happens 500 years after the first peak. And then what takes place next? It's monumental. You have multi-ethnic conversions from Pentecost to the present, even though this world is still under the tyrannical rule of Satan. The gospel of Jesus, his death, his resurrection, his return, it is advancing among the nations so that just like we saw this morning, there are people from Morocco and there are people from Lebanon, people from Indonesia. There are people all over the world who are leaving their idolatry and falling before King Jesus. The church as well is experiencing more peace than any global community elsewhere in the world. And then finally, we look to the future. We're told in Revelation that after Babylon falls and the king storms the earth, this is Revelation 17, 18, 19, the way the Bible ends, the redeemed from every nation will experience complete freedom from sin, from idolatry. There'll be no more disease. There'll be peace forever, all because of Jesus all because the lamb shed his blood for them. Do you see how Micah saw all of that from a distance? Several centuries before. And he didn't understand how much space was between those monumental peaks. Nevertheless, we live in a day where we have already seen the first peak as if we were hiking it. And we've already passed the second peak. And we're already up on the third peak. It has happened exactly as Micah said. And since we're hiking into the third mountain, we know that there are two possibilities. We could say skeptically, when Micah was, was hearing this message from the Lord, he was deluded and he guessed three of the four right. The fourth's not going to happen. He just got lucky in his guess at those first three lottery numbers. He doesn't got the fourth one. We could skeptically say he, he happened to get three of four right. Or we could say much more rationally, the fourth is going to happen just like the first three have. It was actually a few weeks ago that one of my kids asked, how do we know, Dad, that our religion is right? That's a great question. I've personally asked that question many times. I think the first time I remember thinking about it was in elementary school. 
So in a few minutes, I didn't try to give a, a major theological you know, discourse, just tried to give an answer, talk about reading God's word, convincing you it's true, and comparing religions, doing a little study in comparative religions, considering Jesus's resurrection, the claim of his resurrection. But I ended that little conversation saying, you know what, as I read more and more through the Bible, like 40 authors over a millennia and a half, I just keep saying more and more frequently to myself, you can't make this stuff up. No human, no group of humans, no school of humans that endures through centuries could make this stuff up. You can't make up that Micah prophesies over a hundred years before it happens that in his day, a little nation named Babylon is actually going to conquer Jerusalem. But he did. You can't make up that Micah prophesied seven centuries before it happened the exact small town in which the king would be born. And you can't make up the fact that 27 centuries after Micah wrote, people from every nation are fleeing their idolatry and submitting to that Bethlehem-born king. I'm not saying this is the only reason to embrace biblical religion, but it's reality. Micah existed. He wrote. We have copies of Micah. What are you going to do with the facts? You can't make this stuff up. Now, I want to conclude with two messages of encouragement. Two messages, I would say, of pastoral counsel based on Micah. The first grows right out of the teaching I just gave. And that is, no matter how tumultuous your present situation, Jesus, the world's shepherd king who was born in Bethlehem, is our peace. Do you want peace in the middle of circumstances? Read Micah. He demonstrated when he lived on earth that he has the power to calm the storm. Jesus died bearing our punishment, and he has the power to reconcile to God, make peace with God for anyone who takes refuge in him, anyone who will commit their lives to him. He will give you peace with God. He promises to return as king of kings. He promises to bring an end of all conflict, peace that will be ever-growing, according to Isaiah 9. He will end all conflict interpersonally. He will end all conflict internationally. And it's in that solid confidence that we can have peace today no matter what we're going through. If you lack peace in your heart today, if your heart is filled with worry, I encourage you today, over the next few days, try to make a list as long as you can, 50, 100 or more. Make a list of truths about Jesus that give peace. Because as Micah 5.5 5 says, he is our peace. Jesus is your peace. Don't look for peace elsewhere. Look to Jesus. He gives peace. Second word of counsel is closely related. It's a message of hope. 
It's based on Micah's words specifically in chapter 7, verse 8. It definitely goes without saying, but I'm going to say it. That the very things that make Christmas so great also make it a time of emotional darkness. Time with family, memorable traditions, gifts that express special love. They all have within them the seeds of loss when we no longer have family, when we no longer enjoy those traditions, and when the people who gave us those gifts are no longer there to give us gifts or to be given gifts to. It's tragic. And I wonder if some of you in here are like Micah 7, 8. You're sitting in darkness It might be, I'm going to go off on a few other applicational tangents, it might be darkness of your own making. Or not. It could be darkness because of your own selfish choices. Or it could be darkness because of God's stormy providence in your life. Israel was sitting in a darkness of her own making. No question about it. And I'm saying that even if you're there, Even if you're saying, it's not that God took something from me. It's that I've ruined my own life. No matter where you find yourself sitting in darkness, if you are reconciled to God through faith in Jesus, then you are unshakably anchored to the God of covenant-keeping love. According to God's promises, no matter how dark things are today, you will experience a massive reversal. You will experience full and forever forgiveness. You will experience victory over every enemy. You will experience forever healing. You will experience forever peace. And you are called to hope in God who delights in showing you love. Jesus is our peace. Our God, who delights in steadfast love and mercy, he is our hope. And no matter where we find ourselves today, we have solid reason for peace, solid reason for hope.